for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. All right, I am blue. You are bright and shiny in my mind. You got me loving, hating crazy indecision in my mind. Welcome to the Fall Podcast, where the focus is on deer hunting, tips, tricks, tactics, and stories from across the Midwest. And now, here is your host, Aaron Blasey. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and this is episode number 37. 37, Justin. It's it's going fast, I feel like. Yeah. Or is it going slow? I can't really tell. <laughs> I don't know, man. I feel like every other day I turn around, you're... You're saying, what's the next coffee call? Who's our next guest? Like, <laughs> What do you want to talk about? I'm like, man, didn't we just do this yesterday? Exactly. I feel like that's all we do as podcasts at night now. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I can handle it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, and today's guest is is another good one. And we've got Jared Mills, you know, one of yep. your, your co-workers from Midwest Whitetail. Yep, yeah, and it's a, a topic that, uh, you know, I think if you – have listened to the last couple of weeks about pressure and access and everything else we've talked about, you know, Jared, somebody that knows, uh, you know, he, he's doing something. It's not, I wouldn't say it's different, but he's just, he's hunting a different kind of way. It's a little bit different style, I guess. And, you know, taking into consideration all those factors we've talked about in the past, pressure and access, um, you know, and scouting and all that, you know, you and I have watched Midwest Whitetail coming through college because it's always been free. But uh, I am lucky enough to be working for them now. But, uh, you know, Jared is has always been a hang and hunt kind of guy. So that's what we're going to dive into today is, you know, what pushed him into using this style to hunt because he's obviously had some pretty great, you know, proven long-term success doing this. Yeah, and the, the reason why, you know, coming from me, the reason why I wanted to get into the hang and hunt topic, and especially with him, is because, like you said, he's proven successful doing it, and he's been doing it for, I don't know, probably 10 years or 
10 years or so now. Yeah. But it is a new, you know, new thing, new hip thing in the, in the industry right now, in the hunting world, the mobile hang and hunt. But he's kind of been doing it, you know, for a while before guys even, you know, you, you heard of the hang and hunt. And, you know, to kind of come back to what you were saying about the last couple podcasts we put out with the pressure and, and access and, and everything we've been talking about, if you dive in a little deeper as far as like pressure, you know, Jared isn't putting any more pressure on his farm hanging stands. You know, he knows where he wants to get. He scouts it from either afar or from a map. And then the only pressure he's got is cameras if he's running cameras. He just yep. goes in there when he wants to go in to kill. He sets a stand up. And I'll tell you what, he has killed some giants doing yeah. that. Yeah, he is. And it's, you know, it's that versatility, I think, that allows you to get in there, kind of assess the situation, you know. And I think you're going to probably hear him say that, you know, most of the success on these hanging hunts happens on the first, if not the second sit. So it's about going in and making the adjustments that you may need to make, you know, moving. It might just be 10 yards, might be 50 yards, but you know, when you're bow hunting, those are the, those are those minute details that pay off, you know, dividends, you know, and can define your season. So, I mean, it's just one of those things that I think the mobility and just the overall effectiveness that he has has had doing this i mean like you said he's killed some giants so i mean it speaks for itself yeah and i'm ready to dive in to this with him and and really get down with the nitty-gritty but first and i haven't really told you yet but i've got an announcement to make and that is the fall podcast has just now partnered up with america's best bowstrings officially Officially, we are officially partnered up with That's America's awesome. Best Bowstrings, which is, which is awesome because America's Best they're out of Ohio, and they are pre- a pretty small company, but I feel like they're at the forefront of the bowstring industry. Basically, they are in the upper echelon of bowstrings out there, in my opinion. And you know, the guys over there, Brian and Tim and Jerry, they're all awesome guys. I got to meet them. We did a podcast with them, but I'm yep. super excited to shoot their strings this year. And I know you've been shooting, you know, their strings for a couple years now. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, I, I had them on my bows before I got to Midwest Whitetail. And, you know, um, if anybody watches Midwest Whitetail, you know that they're one of our partners as well. And, um, you know, relatively new partner to us. But, um, you know, even though I'm still new, to the team here um i've heard nothing but great things about abb and the product in general you know it's it's an american-made product from a small shop you know in the midwest and i mean um i know that alone is a good reason you know it gives people a good reason to want to spend their money on it knowing that it's made right here and uh secondly just an awesome product i mean um, you can get a little more speed out of your bow, the durability of them, you know, the cool color options that they have. And, um, you know, just it's a good quality product. And, I mean, if you're not – I think everybody wants to put good stuff on their bows. I mean, it's – I don't know. It just gives you that confidence. And you know, if you can shoot better with something, then why not use it? And that's – Exactly. Like I said, I, I, I used them before I got here, but can't say enough good about them. Yeah, and and one of the cool things is is – you know, a lot of people like to customize their their bows. You know, in this industry that it's so manly and and down and deep and dirty and <laughs> and tough and everything, a lot of these guys 
like to customize their bow, and I'm one of them. I like to have a certain color, and I like to have it all, you know, matching. And yep. they have an assortment of colors on their strings that you can either do twist, you can do, you can change the serving color. Now they just announced that they have customizable colors on the heat shrink, which is really cool. So the sky's the limit with these things, man. And they're just awesome to talk to. If you guys, if anybody's in the market for a string, I highly recommend going to America's best and, and trying them out. Um, their website is America's best bowstrings.com, or you can even get on there and, and give them a call. They're really good guys to talk to and you know tell them that uh aaron and justin from the the fall podcast sent you yeah we actually gave one away a couple weeks ago now so um yeah i got a feeling it's probably not the last one of those we're gonna do no no we've we've got some stuff in the works and and i'm excited to get it out there to everybody and and get it going for sure awesome that's great news yeah you know with that being said let's get i think we need to get jared on the phone here yeah let's get him on here and start this conversation all right, on the phone with us today is Jared Mills from Midwest Whitetail. Jared, how you doing, man? Good, man. How are you doing? Good, good. You know, Justin uh, brought the brought to my attention that you know we should get you on the podcast here, and I thought it was a great idea. I've been watching a lot of your guys' Midwest Whitetail for a lot of years now, and I kind of kind of came up on it because it was the. I mean, you guys were really the pioneer of the web show and and digital, and you're really the leaders in the forefront in my eyes, and. I just love watching, you know, what you guys are doing in the semi-live. So I really like, you know, seeing the season as it unfolds in the season. And uh, nobody's really doing that. I mean, you get a lot of guys that are just, you know, freelance doing it, but nobody with the magnitude, you know, that you guys are at and the level you're at. And it's uh, it's really cool to see. Yeah, we appreciate that. It's a, it's a lot of work, and Justin's got his first taste of how much work it is. He knows how many sleepless nights he had this fall, but, um, that, you know, it's, it's cool to see the response from people and, and hear exactly what you just said. It's, it's real, it's relatable. They can see what's going on almost in real time. And, um, like I said, it's a ton of work, but it's cool to see the response and I appreciate you having me. This should be a, a, a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. And, you know, today I'd really like to cover something that I feel like, uh, and even Justin vouched for you as well is something that, I've seen you do a lot and it's the hang and hunt or the hang and bang, like I like to call it. And you're really successful at doing it. And I really kind of want to dive deep into that and, and basically your system and how you do it all. Yeah. I I love hanging hunts. Well, let me back up. I don't love doing them. It's a ton (laughs) of work, but I love the results. Um, it kind of speaks for themselves and we can get into why I think it works or at least, uh, from my experience, how it has worked. Cool. You know, and I kind of got a little ahead of myself. I'd like to actually have you introduce yourself. You know, I said you work for Midwest Whitetail. Kind of, can you tell us what you do with Midwest Whitetail and, and maybe how long you've been there? Yeah. So I'm currently, if you, if you put a title on, I guess, business manager, I kind of oversee the production of, of everything we do and of course contribute content. Um, I just came back to full time with Midwest Whitetail a year and a half ago now. Um, but I've been with Middle White Tail since 2010. Bill hired me as an intern uh, straight out of college. And so I worked full-time for Middle White Tail for about a year and a half back then. Um, went and did some other things, worked for Muddy Outdoors, uh, did some uh, other sales roles, and then eventually full circle came back to doing this full-time. It just, uh, I got to the point where 
I just wanted to get back to being able to hunt a lot. And I was tired of using all 14 days of my vacation time with, <laughs> and sales rules, you know, allotting it to the fall and not having left over time. So I just needed something that allowed me to get in the woods more. And, and this made sense. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something I kind of fought myself with. You know, I went to college for television and digital media productions and I was like, oh, you know, I'd like to be in the hunting industry because I love to hunt and everything. Well, you don't get a lot of time to hunt when you're being a field producer and editor, but you're still out there doing everything. So I can totally relate to what you're, what you're saying. So, yeah. Well, cool. uh, I'd like to start from the top kind of here and, and, and ask you what you know what experiences did you have that made you want to do the hanging hunts and you know instead of the the preset pre-hung kind of stands like everybody's you know the norm of doing basically yeah and as i try to think back when i started doing this honestly i think it happened by mistake it wasn't like i was looking at it strategically it was more that i didn't have enough tree stands to put up different spots i didn't want to spend a bunch of money on tree stands i just bought one mobile set and you know thought this would this is be just fine it's not that hard to hang and hunt and that's that's when i kind of stumbled on how effective it was but it wasn't when i started doing it i didn't know what the concept of hanging and hunting even was i just happened to start doing it um, and then once I got into filming and having a cameraman with me, I was already hanging at least one stand anyway for the cameraman. Uh, so it wasn't that much harder to, to add a second one. So, you know, a couple of those, couple of things right there kind of led to figuring out how effective it was in every single year. It's just kind of evolved from there into, I would say this past season upwards, probably more than 90% of my hunts were hanging hunts. Uh, very, very few was I go into a preset, preset stand. And, and some of that is because of hunting new properties, but a lot of it is just because I truly believe in the effectiveness of it. So when you go into a year, are you, do you have a set amount of, you know, stands that you like to preset or pre-hang and, you know, do you have special areas that, you know, year after year, those deliver. So instead of doing a hang and hunt, you know, you can get in there maybe a little more aggressive on the edge of some bedding or food. Um, do you have any of that instance when you're going into the year? Yeah, I definitely do. And, and I've had some turnover of farms recently as far as permission, losing, gaining permission. So that obviously takes that away. But farms I have hunted for a while, I do have preset stands. It's more or less that I just didn't want to go through the work of taking them down. I know they're in a good spot. But typically on those farms, I target individual deer, and a lot of times those stands will go un- unhunted the entire season or for multiple seasons just because the deer I'm hunting isn't cored up there. Um, but I know it's in a good spot in general to see deer, just not the the deer I'm particularly targeting. So I do have preset stands. They just don't tend to get hunted quite a bit. Yeah, and, you know, I guess what kind of brought this on to me with the hang and hunt is I've been fighting with myself. I, I really want to be somewhat mobile and do a hang and hunt. I really don't feel like I have the right stand for it. You know, it, it's one of those new fads that everybody's like going mobile now and saddle hunting and, and doing the hang and hunt thing. But you know, lone wolf just came out with some more new hang and hunt systems that are you know, pertain to hang and hunting. Um, yeah. And my biggest thing that I'm fighting with myself on is I'm really crazy about the noise. I just feel like I'm going to, you know, sound like a, 
like a herd of cattle coming in and the you know sweating and everything and trying to hang two stands mm-hmm. so i guess that's my biggest thing and and how do you combat that like the noise and you know with another guy a cameraman and trying to hang two stands as well the the second person is key there um one you can distribute who carries what but you're already making a lot of noise with two people you know there's just no way around that yep um and and carrying two stands on top of it really doesn't add that much in my opinion but i'm not gonna say those aren't negative those are huge negatives uh for hanging and hunting it's it's a trade-off that i've battled myself you know but I, ultimately the effectiveness of it has kind of trumped those those things that you just mentioned the, the noise and sweating going in and I will say I have had some experiences where I think that extra noise somehow helped us, and we've had bucks come in literally minutes after getting fully set up. Um, they just they're they're curious. They they come to check those things out. As long as you're smart with wind direction and stuff coming in, you know a little bit of noise I don't think bothers. And uh, even lights and stuff. I've done quite a bit of hanging hunts in the dark in the mornings and you know, I've, I've never been scared to shine flashlights trying to find the right tree or get around branches or whatever it is. Um, I, I think that stuff does more damage in our, in our mind than it actually does, uh, on the hunt. Yep. I, I totally understand and get that, you know, cause it's, it's one of those things that like, when you get when you come up in hunting and you, and you evolve as a young hunter and then and move into you know what we are now as adults and everything i think a lot of the the you know social media now but like magazines and everything you read and and see and hear is that deer are they don't like like you said don't like flashlights and you know and they don't like uh i mean their nose is one thing their nose is their biggest defense right. but you know, we get a lot of these thoughts in our mind, like deer, you know, we've talked about it before about how a lot of people say, you know, deer at six, seven, eight years old are going to go from a 180 to a, to a hundred inch deer. And yeah, a lot of deer probably do that, but I think we get these thoughts in our head that, you know, this is the equation. This is what happens every year to every deer, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not so much that if, if that makes sense, I'm kind of rambling there, but, uh, you know, like you were saying yeah, with the flashlight, it probably doesn't bother them that much at all, honestly. Yeah, and especially if you're in the timber, if you've ever stood a few hundred yards away from a guy using a light, it's so hard to pick up. You might catch a, a little glimpse of it here or there, but it, it really doesn't carry that far. And then with the noise factor, there's always all kinds of noises out there. You know, it's something that they, they live with. You think about just even some of the loud ones that you think would scare a deer, you know, hedge balls falling and how loud are those and it never bothers deer i've watched you know their reaction to that and branches falling and and whatever there's a lot of noises that i I think um it just doesn't do as much damage as we think it does oh i would say that you know to add to that in considering your strategy when you're going in for that particular hunt you know if you're hunting the timber in the morning trying to catch deer coming back from a food source at night you know, you're not blazing through a bedding area, blowing every year out of there. You're trying to get to them before they get back. Right. You know, and conversely, if you were to be hunting a deer that you know you are in close quarters with, you're going to proceed with even more caution and maybe even opt out to leave that second guy out and just make it a solo mission. But I mean, it's just a matter of what the situation is. Sure. Now, Jared, when you go in, are you using like a red light or green light or just a normal flashlight? Uh, all three. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'll use a normal flashlight when I need the extra light. If I um, if I don't need that much light, if I just need a little bit to help guide you know my steps of not stepping on stuff, it'll be red or green depending on which one I have with me that day. I have you know multiple headlamps that I keep in my pack, and um, but I don't. I really have not experienced. In my experience, that hasn't made a difference. It's just if I need more light, I'll use a white one. If not, I'll use red or green. Gotcha. And you know, when you go in to do, let's say, let's say it's a morning and you're going to go in and do a hang and hunt. Are you approaching that any differently than you would, let's say, if you're going to a set stand that you've already, you know, a pre-hung stand that you've already had up? Yeah. I leave a lot earlier, first of all, because <laughs> I spend so much time trying to find the right tree. I mean, you guys, any hunter really knows how hard that is. That's sometimes the biggest battle and, I, and I'll likely go into areas that I haven't been to. Uh, before it's it's starting from an aerial map and looking thinking there's got to be a good tree here somewhere but you know i'm I'm picking 100 yard circles or something where i want to be maybe 50 maybe a little smaller but um, i'm definitely not picking the the particular tree i want to be in so i i gotta give myself some time to find that and then you guys know how how much extra time it takes to hang sticks and two stands and camera equipment so oh, yeah yep uh that's that's the biggest difference is time i would say uh, no change as far as how I access still got to be cautious, uh, with the wind and, um, where you're leaving ground scent and all that stuff. Now, when you're entering the woods in the morning, let's say you get to the stand or get to the tree that you want, or maybe you just can't find that tree. So you've started with the aerial photo and you're like, I want to get in this area. I mean, there's had to been numerous times where you've just fought with yourself. Like, man, I really want to get in that tree, but it's not big enough. Or, you know, have you yep. had to settle for a, you know, more than not situation um, when you go in in the morning? Yeah, two things. I'll either settle for less than ideal tree or I'll wait till it gets a little lighter and I can see further without tromping all around with the flashlight and leaving scent everywhere. I'll just wait till it gets a little lighter and I can glass a better tree and, and make that make the move then. Um, but you're, you're exactly right. I've found myself in that situation multiple times. And are you, uh, are you trimming at all, trimming any lanes, or are you trying to pick uh, more of a bear tree? I mean, you're a guy that likes a lot of cover up front or back cover. Or, you know, what's your situation there? Yeah, ideally, yeah, the cover, but there's a trade-off because you don't know what the trees around you are going to look like. Usually, the issue is not usually the tree that you're in. It's uh, nearby trees as far as your shooting lanes. So I, I, I would prefer a tree, especially with two people in it. I, I don't like being in a bare tree. There's just too much movement going on up there. So I prefer a tree that has some cover. Uh, but I have found myself, when it starts getting light, we you know spend all this time setting up, find a good tree, waiting for it to get light and it gets light and you realize you have no shooting lanes or very very few and i've had those hunts before and it's uh it's unfortunate but it's kind of part of the game when you're when you're going in blind like that yeah one thing i would add to that is you know i'd, I'd add that even with all those trade-offs that he's talking about you know not knowing exactly what tree you're looking for or else being very particular and i didn't spend a lot of time with you this year but kind of the, the horror stories I've heard amongst the office that uh, Jared Mills spends more time looking for the tree <laughs> that he's going to hunt out of than it takes to get it set. That's true. But, uh, you know, like going back to what I was saying, all those trade-offs, 
to me are contributing factors to the success of these hanging hunts because you know you're in a new spot every time and the deer doesn't know to look in those spots like they would if you're hunting the same stand every time you go out and you know it's just to me it makes sense that those are you know important and very contributing factors to the success you have in there even if you don't kill like the encounters you get and knowing that like you're in the bedroom or you're in a different spot on that trail either to or from the food or bedding or whatever the case may be you're just you're someplace different that the deer doesn't expect to encounter danger or hasn't encountered danger there in the past yeah i think that leads us to why i believe hanging hunting is so effective and it's i i you know earlier i said i don't think we do as much damage as we think we do with noise and um like flashlights and stuff i do think we do more damage than we realize just from being at the tree i think even if we don't see a deer during that hunt the next or later that night or the next morning or whatever deer walks by later i think our scent lingers our sign lingers um i think deer just to that more than we think and and having the element of surprise on your side like justin was talking about i think is huge and I, i truly believe that has been effective on a lot of my hunts on a lot of my buck harvest is is having that element of surprise either first time in or you know maybe the second time in but not many more times than that i I truly think your effectiveness falls off and the main reason is because we do more damage than we know of when we're there even if we don't think we got spotted or smelled or anything during the hunt you know you don't know what happens after you leave right and that's a great point because you know like i alluded to earlier i think we weren't recording at the time but justin and i were talking about it last week with pressure on your farm and this year i kind of took a step back i keep a journal every year of like all my sets and you know what happens and what deer i see and everything and and i was kind of going through that journal and recap and you know over the last i think it's been four years i've killed some pretty good bucks and a couple in missouri and a couple here in michigan um all with a bow and every one of them it kind of was a light bulb moment it kind of told me like I need to dive deeper into this but all of them were on the first time in and two yeah. of them were on hanging hunts in the evenings and that was more particular toward or that was more towards I needed to be in that area but the wind was wrong for days and I knew I couldn't push in until I had that wind and I had a I finally got that wind I went in there and killed that night now that told me something I'm like maybe I should look farther into this but then I've got that little guy on the shoulder still that says, wait a second, like, it's going to be more time, you're going to be loud, mm. you're going <laughs> to, and I'm like trying to find a happy medium here, but all the upper echelon bucks that I've killed have been on first time in sits, whether they've been pre-hung or hang and, hang and hunt, basically. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's no coincidence. I've seen that and heard that so many times, you know, obviously I've seen it in my own hunts, but it's it truly is a trade off because it's so much harder doing a hanging on every single time, and uh, it you know like you said more time more effort more noise all that stuff but uh, there there's no denying that it works there, there's so many stories across the board of, of first time in uh, success. I mean that was me this whole year, you know my first season in Iowa, and I was hunting public ground all year. You know I, I hunted private the last three days of this late muzzleloader that's now over but every minute i put in this year was on public ground and there was one time i think i went they got skunked every other time i went out 
I was passing bucks that were in range. And you're almost in a different spot every time too. Yeah. I, I only hunted the same spot twice. Like one time I hunted the same tree twice the two days before I killed, saw what they were doing and I moved in close and I, I mean, I killed on the ground, but I mean, I hunted four different sections of public ground, but in Southern Iowa and I mean, the first day I went out, it was like October 18th, I think. Yeah. And me and Cooper encountered that that really nice two-year-old and had him at 10 yards making a scrape. Like, it was just a cool hunt, and that was successful to me. I chose not to kill him because I recognized how young he was and the potential he had. But, I mean, to go in there, pick the spot, like you said, based on a map, put a plan together, find that tree, and just go where everybody else isn't going. You know, and it's that's different, I think, on public land, but because you are competing with so many other people. But at the end of the day, like you're applying the same principles to the same animal, and you get the same results. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and another thing you touched on that just popped in my head: it doesn't have to be a huge adjustment. You know, we talk about these hanging hunts and and adjusting to what you see. And the deer adjust, but the deer aren't adjusting dramatically either. So even a 50-yard move here or there mm-hmm. makes a huge difference. You know, that's the difference between a deer being a bow range and a deer going out of bow range because of what they experience there. You know, the damage you do does damage on that tree, but, you know, a simple little adjustment can make all the difference in the world, and that's kind of what you did on your kill. Yeah, I think I made about a, I don't know, 60 or 70-yard adjustment. And like you said, some deer come in on you during the setup or right after you're done that day I rattled from the ground and while I was getting my tripod set up before I even started rattling I had a young buck come in on me before I was recording he came in at 10 yards blue and he ran off so I just sat there for 15 more minutes and then moved further into that into that drainage I ended up killing like 30 yards from where I had that first encounter but 70 yards from where I had seen him the previous two days yeah and sometimes it's coincidence but um even that noise thing you know that deer curious creatures they yeah. even as long as you're not banging metal and stuff together it, you know if it's you know, the natural noises they so many times they come and check it out while you're hanging the stand it's it's kind yeah. of amazing you know speaking of banging metal are are you taking any precautions of you know putting any you know tape on it or you know a lot of guys do the um, the silent, I can't remember what they're called, like silent strips or silent tape. Are you doing anything of that, anything of that nature to your sticks or stand just to stay that much more quiet? I'm not, but I should. Um, I still cringe every time I accidentally <laughs> bang something together and thinking that I just messed up my hunt, but, um, it never really does. It just, it's more, again, it's, it's more just me, but I haven't personally tried anything like that. I'm not that I'm against it. I just haven't done it. Okay. One thing I cover up is the tree arm. Like I I use that wrap, like that camo wrap you can buy at Cabela's or wherever. But I mean, it's the same stuff they put on your arm at the hospital or when you donate blood. I just get the black or the camo and I, because when you're standing up there, like, you know, those buckles on your harness that are coming across your thighs, if you have the right setup, you're usually right there hip height with the tree arm. And those are the ones that. Self-filming, it's always my release that hits that. Yeah, at least is what hits my camera arm. I do the same thing with my camera arm, like everything, my fluid head. I mean, I'm just anal about noise, and especially when I'm filming. Like, you know, that hunter's there 
hunting, you should, you know, me as a producer, I feel like even when I'm getting filmed, like I want somebody to be act like, you know, you, you're one guy, not two. You know what I mean? I mean, everybody says it's double the scent, double the, the noise and everything. So when I'm filming, I'm trying to be, you know, out of sight, out of mind, basically. And I don't want the hunter, whoever I'm filming, to have to worry about me, worry if I'm going to hit record, worry if, worry if I'm going to be yeah. focused or even loud, you know. so Yeah, and that goes to another point. Like, you know, the three of us, we've all heard horror stories about people who get these camera guys that, you know, they're phenomenal on a camera. They're, they take great pictures. They're, they can lay down the storyline, but they're not hunters and they're just not aware of, you know, what's going on in that play by play moment. And it's one of those trade-offs again, where if you're at the mercy of somebody you don't know, or you're not familiar with working with, yep. you know, do, do you want the guy who's going to nail the footage, but not be in the hunt? Or do you want the guy who's in the hunt that you might be able to coach through the footage? Yeah. And even going a little bit deeper than that, just, you want guys that hunt like you in general, exactly. even, even strategically, um, you know, believe in the same strategies and, and things that you do because it's, it's the little stuff that matters. It's, it's, uh, you know, how precautious you are doing certain things. Even all of us can admit that, you know, November 1st, we're probably a little more cautious than we are on November 21st. You, you get burned out and that's kind of the same feeling that a cameraman that, you know, you know, doesn't agree with your hunting strategies or wants to do something different. Um, they're just not going to do the little things right. And, and all that stuff adds up. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more, man. Like, you know, we were in an instance this year, Casey and I had a real big deer. I mean, he was touching for sure. 190 could be 200. He was at 28 yards and you know, it, it literally, you could hear a, a pin drop and it's one of those things that both of you have to be dialed. You have to be, yeah. it's, you know, even with you the camera, you got to act like you're the one killing the deer as well. Yep. You know, and it's, it's, it takes not, I shouldn't say a special person, but I agree 100% with you. You have to have someone that, you know, believes the same way you do and takes the same steps as you do, you know, even walking or entering a stand or, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it takes a while to get someone, you know, that, that films you or you film with to gel with, you know, I yeah. know Casey and I, for the first year, it was a learning curve. You know, I had to learn how he did things and, and really how I do things just didn't really matter. You have to adapt as a cameraman to who you're filming as well. And you might have to tweak some things and, and it's just, it's one of those things you'll learn it and once you do it's 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 a lot of fun it really is yeah you're exactly right it's and, and i've seen guys go through different cameramen and filming partners and and all that just for that reason you just don't hunt similarly and and again i have a long list of my pet peeves when it comes to cameramen <laughs> and, and you know what i think they should do and and sometimes it's just me being too obsessive about stuff but um when you find someone that hunts like you and you're invested in their success as much as you know they are yours. It really works well. Yep, and not to get not to get too far off the beaten path like we have already. But last year, uh, it wouldn't be the season we're coming off right now, but the year before, um, we were in Kansas. Casey and I are in Kansas. We we've, we've been hunting our butt off. We've been hunting Iowa. You know, he he took him four years to draw the tag, and we you know, we spent like 25 days in Iowa, and then we went over to our lease in Kansas to change it up a little bit and like first or second night in the stand uh there was a deer we were hunting big deer he's like right at 
right at 170, 175, somewhere in there. Just mature deer, and, and Casey went into blind rattle, and he rattles, and this deer comes in, I mean, hot. He is coming in now, and he's coming in on my side of the tree. But I can't, we're, we're in thick timber, and it's hard to see. And he came and stopped at like 15 yards in the brush. And, of course, my camera's facing away from him, and I've got a wheel around so the deer's coming in, it would be in front of my stand, but I'm facing the tree. And that was mistake number one on my part. So I'm trying to tell him that there's a deer behind us, and it's the deer that we're trying to kill. And I'm trying to move, and the deer busted me. The first time I've ever had a deer bust me in the stand, and the he didn't he didn't freak out, but he knew something was up, and he was on his way in, I mean, to give us a chip shot. And he just kind of turned around, and he walked off. It took him, you know, a good three, four minutes to walk off, never blew, but he knew something was up. And, um, and I, I was, I was so mad at myself. You would have thought I missed the biggest deer of my life hunting. And I just took it so hard because it goes back to what I told myself from day one, you know, you have to be on the ball at all, all times. You have to be, it doesn't matter. You, I got caught with my pants around my ankles and, and it paid or, and it, cost us and I I still to this day I think about it and I'm like and I had to edit the hunt too and I'm like gosh dang it <laughs> I'm reliving <laughs> this thing now and it's like it just you know it's one of those things you have to be on the ball every every step of the way so yeah that's exactly right well back to our normal conversation or our initial conversation here um I do wanted to ask you a question about let's say you go in the morning and you do a hanging hunt regardless of, you know, maybe you had a good morning or a bad morning, but you, you just like the area. Do you leave the stand up and then hunt it that night a lot of times, or are you taking it down, rehanging it, or adjusting all the time? Um, I have left them in there before to come hunt, like, you know, a few days later or something. Not very often if I come back in the afternoon. If I'm going to if I'm going to hunt it in the afternoon, I'm just going to stay in. I'm not going to get down and then get back in. Um, I think that you, you're just doing more unnecessary damage, leaving more ground scent and stuff by going out and coming back in. But um, if I if I have a spot that I, I really like, I will leave a stand there for sure for a future hunt. Okay. That, that was my one of my biggest things was, you know, a lot of times hunting all day, it's, it's kind of got to be a special scenario you know what I mean like you don't just a lot of people don't go in and just hunt all day all the time so I didn't know if it was one of those things if you go in and you're like just really like the spot if you're just leaving it hung or you actually get you know taking it down then rehanging it that night or or how you did that yeah if I have an extra stand to work with which isn't always the case um I will leave one in there if I know it's in a good spot and I expect that I could potentially hunt it in coming days or weeks Okay. And how, I mean, how, how early are you getting in, you know, whether it be a morning or a night, like, you know, let's say when you go hunt up a, a, a pre-hung, maybe in the morning you want to be in uh, an hour before crack a day. That's when you want to be set, ready to go. It, I don't know if that's true or not, but how, how much time are you giving yourself to get that stand hung? Uh, let me think. I, I usually shoot for, and, and my goal is a lot different than reality sometimes because it always takes longer than I think, <laughs> but my goal is to be completely set up, letting things settle, 
half hour before legal shooting light, which would be an hour before sunrise. Um, so I would say I usually give myself, depending on the spot, of course, but a good hour from the time I arrive at the property until I want to have everything fully settled. I've, I usually can't get it done in less than an hour, uh, including walking in and setting stands and then setting everything up in the tree after that. Yeah, and that, that was one of the things, you know, this year I was trying to get in. I like to be in setting, just breathing, in the tree, everything ready, an hour before, you know, light's starting to crack. And, and uh, here in Michigan, I do a lot of hunting here, and it's very, you know, really highly pressured and, and, uh, it's, I just, if you always feel like you're walking on eggshells, you know, and yeah. it's like, man, you just take every step tiptoeing around and everything. And I just feel like not even just in Michigan, but it does help here, but just getting it early and letting everything just settle back down. And, you know, like you said, you know, deer get curious about hearing noises and, you know, unless it's a uh, metal you know, cracking together or something, but rustling the leaves, they get, they get uh, curious about that. So I actually had that instance this year going in, in the morning, it was a pre-hung set, but I, I bumped a doe, I bumped her and she just ran like probably 40 yards and just stopped. And I could hear her, you know, just kind of milling around and everything. She didn't blow. And I just kind of, as, as I could hear her walking, I would start walking because I was kind of paralleling her and I got into my stand and, um, next thing you know, crack of day it comes and and she walks right underneath me had no clue I was there and I just felt like that extra time that I gave it it really helped me out in that instance yeah you it, I think deer can get settled down fairly quickly as long as there's not repeated noises you watch a deer just in its natural environment and there's there's a noise you know its ears perk up for a little bit and it's it sits really still trying to listen for that the second um, the second noise so they can confirm location. If that never happens, they go back to uh, just complete, normal, relaxed state. And uh, I think that's important once you get set up it, to give yourself some time for everything to settle down. Yep. You know, and a lot of guys, these a lot of mobile and hang and hunt guys, they're really particular on their gear. You know, the weight is a big thing in, in the mobile hunting now. Um with your gear, what kind, what gear are you using? And, you know, what, what are the steps that you're taking? You know, what, what's your pet peeves? Do you want to be as light as you can be, or does it not matter to you? And is it just functionality? Like, how do you approach that? Yeah. And I may not be in a situation that all guys are in because I always have a camera or almost always have a cameraman with me. I'm not always, I'm not solo hunting as much as I used to. So having an extra person to carry a, a stack of sticks or an extra stand, um, makes a big difference. So I don't think I place as much emphasis on weight. I just want quickness and uh, ease of setting up. That's really what I look for. And when I first start, first started doing hanging hunts, I was using, using the muddy stuff, sticks and stands and, and those worked well. And then kind of evolved and switched into the lone wolf stuff. And that's what I'm currently using. But, um, I've seen some of the other products out there. I think there's a lot of good options. I don't, I'm not necessarily, um, a proponent of one is way better than all the others i think there's a lot of options depending on if guys are more weight guys or ease of use guys uh, for me it's the ease of use and how quick can i get up the tree 
yeah, quick and quiet and, and efficient. I, I, I was thinking you're probably going to head that way. I, I didn't know, you know, would that change at all for you if you were going in by yourself? Would you be more anal about, you know, weight if you had to do it all yourself or are you still going to go towards the ease of use? I would probably lean a little bit more towards the weight, but I still think ease of use trumps it. Just it's, um, if something's really light, that's, that's great. But if it takes you an extra 20 minutes to set up, then it kind of cancels out the the point of it. Um, I, I carry enough stuff in with camera gear and all that, that I don't know that that extra weight makes all that much of a difference. It's, <laughs> it's a bear either way. It seems like. Yep. So, you know, Let's say, for instance, you are going in by yourself, and when you get to the tree, what is your process getting up the tree? How many how many sticks do you have? Are you using kind of like rapid rails? Are you using sticks that you put together? Like, uh, how many of those are you using? And and what's your process from the base of the tree to get the tree or get the stand hung? Yeah, I think the important thing to start with is making sure that you have. Um, I usually try to put a stick on each side of my. Uh, safety harness kind of hanging off of there so I can put the first stick around the base of the tree while I'm standing on the ground and hook the other two on the side of my harness as I'm going up so that the second stick I have in my hands the third and fourth stick I have on my belt and this is I'm, I'm trying to go at this like if I was by myself if I have a cameraman I just make sure I have the rope tied and and they tie every everything as I'm climbing yep so I don't have to climb with them. But if I'm by myself, I try to minimize the times I have to go up and down the tree, hopefully only once. But having some type of system where you can hook the climbing sticks on the side of your safety harness really helps and, and saves multiple trips up the tree. And then making sure you have easy access to a pruning saw is, is huge on these hanging hunts. You know, I, I always keep mine either in my hand warmer or my chest pocket or something where I can really easily get it and, and cut a little limb off because, as you guys know, there's never the perfect straight tree in the perfect spot. So you're usually having to make adjustments, do trimming, um, things like that. So and how long does it typically take you from the base of the, you know, the base of the tree to get the stand hung and, and, and get set, ready to go? So let's say I'm, I'm – just using four sticks and a stand and I can just go up with the stand tied onto a rope. So once I get those four sticks up, I'm pulling the stand up, not, not taking into account of all the, the camera gear and everything. I would say I can do a hanging hunt pretty reasonably in 15 minutes, you know, just the, the hanging of the sticks and the stand. Yep. That's pretty good. But, I mean, and you've had a lot of practice at that too. Yeah, I've had a lot of practice, but as we talked about earlier, like what Justin alluded to, all the time is in finding the tree. It's not necessarily in the hanging. And of course there's situations where you get up there and there's a, a knot in the tree or a, you know, some type of crooked bend and it ends up taking three times as long as it should have. But in general, the, the actual hanging is, is the part that usually goes the quickest. Yeah, and that's... You know, that's one of the other things too, you know, you could be on a piece where I found myself on a piece that I've never really set foot on and I've looked at an area and I'm like, I want to get in this area and it's, it's kind of intimidating in a way. And it's like, man, I've never been in there before. I don't know what I'm going to get into. Do I really want to go do this hang and hunt thing or do I want to go in there and scope it out and do a preset or pre-hung, you know, stand. And it's, it's kind of intimidating to think about, but I really want to 
dive into it. And that's why I wanted to have you on. I wanted to to get your system and, and figure out what you do because I know you've done it a lot for many years and very successful at it because one of my biggest things on my one of my farms here in Michigan is it's a it's a small farm acreage wise it's 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 decent it's 120 acres but there's only four acres of timber and it's broke up I have one acre section then I have a three acre section and I have some prehungs in there and the re- reason why I do that is because I just want to ease in there I mean it's hard when there's small sections because there could be deer in there and I, I've actually set them up with some you know. TSI and hinge cutting and everything where I can actually get into stands with deer within 40, 50 yards of me and not get boogered, you know? So I, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around doing a hang and hunt when, when I got a scenario like that. Now with a scenario like that, what do you recommend if I do do a hang and hunt to try to get in there quickly and quietly and efficient? Um, I guess, what are you asking you? As far as instead of the preset? Yeah, so if I wanted to, instead of doing a preset, because my biggest downfall is I don't want to be on the farm. I want to keep the pressure off as yeah. much as I can. So even in the summer, just saying, okay, I'm not putting any stands up, but I know mm-hmm. where the areas I need to be in. So if I, you know, these smaller acreage pieces of woods, you know, how would mm-hmm. you, I guess, how would you approach them to do a hang and hunt, knowing that there could be deer within... 50 to 100 yards of you yeah well well no at least knowing the area you want to be in you're already at at an advantage um and if you know the tree you want to be in even if you don't have a preset uh stand there that's another big step like i said that's always the biggest challenge you're gambling if you don't know the area you're gambling if there's a tree in the right spot so if you know those two things it's as simple as uh creating a safe access route uh, going in and going out from that, you know, that the actual hanging, it's, it's going to be the same no matter where you're at. But if you have a good access route, you know where you need to go. Um, most of the hard work's taken out of the equation already. Yep. And that's, like I said, that's one thing I'm just trying to fight with myself, but I want to get into it because I, the trade-off is I'm not on the farm as much if at all in the summer doing things that you, you know, you always get curious and it's like, oh, what's mm-hmm. what's going on with the farm? And I want to be there. And, you know, you have this yeah. farm and it's like, I want to enjoy it. But it's like, don't go in yeah. there. Stay disciplined and stay <laughs> off it. So that's kind of what's tough. Yeah, it is. It really is. Because because we, we enjoy more than just the, you know, the, the harvest or the kill. It's We just love spending time on the lands. And even though we know it does damage, you know, yep. I, I still find myself just going out there, looking at trees, looking at the terrain um, stuff like that. But it, it, it is tough when you, when you know in the back of your head, you shouldn't be there and you're, you're, you're doing yourself no good when it comes to the actual hunt. Yep. And you're always trying to tweak things too. You know, it's like, man, I had, yeah. had saw a lot of deer in this area last year. I, I need, I want to go in and, and kind of see why they're using the terrain there or why they're coming through there. So it's always like, and that's just more added pressure on your farm. Yep. Yeah, it's a trade off though because you do you do learn. That's the best way to learn is is boots on the ground. Yep. So, for anybody out there that wants to get into the hang and hunt, what do you recommend as far as gear? And now, maybe it's not a specific brand, but maybe as far as functionality and ease of use. Like, what what are the things that you look for in you know stand and sticks climbing method um, that people should be looking to get into? 
I would look for something that is packable. So the sticks somehow go attached to the stand, whether that's on the post or on the platform and then having backpack straps on the stand. Of course, I think, I think just that packability is huge. So I would look for some type of set that goes together, whether that's the same brand or if you can make, you know, cross brands work. Um, I'm not sure, but I would just look for something that packs together. That'll make a huge difference in the ease of actually doing this. And one other thing I wanted to touch on before, um, you know, we, we stopped talking about this hanging hunt thing. We, we talk about how effective it is and there's no doubt I would recommend people to try it, but the safety thing is the number one thing that people really need to keep in mind. If, if you start trying this, um, if you're hanging a stand every single hunt, you're increasing your odds of something happening. So just be very, very vigilant and wearing a harness, using your lineman's rope, all that type of stuff. Because if, if you're not going to a stand that already has a safe line and steps and everything like that, you're uh, adding to the danger of falling. So just, just be very, very cautious of that. If you start getting into the hang and hunt, uh, situation more often, I think you almost need that lineman belt uh, yeah. to hang those sticks. Like no, oh, for sure you do, but even climbing, I mean, even, just, that's what I'm saying. Even climbing up and yeah. just being able to set your stick and then lean back out of your harness, yeah. having two hands to work with as you're getting up in the tree and setting the stand. I mean, instead of one hand in it, you know, trying oh, yeah. to, swing the strap around catch it get it hooked on yeah i wouldn't even consider that for for multiple reasons but primarily safety it's just you, there's no doubt you're increasing the odds of, of something happening by doing this type of hunting yeah and you know the the tree harness companies are you know safety harness they're making it too easy to be safe mm-hmm. you know what i mean now like it's just too easy it's it's yeah, you know there's no they, excuse there's no excuse. And, you know, we were talking before we started recording, you know, you and I have, uh, you know, little kids and, and Justin's yep. got dogs he's got to worry about too. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you want to come home safe to your family and your friends and everything. And, you know, you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting the people around you as well. And you really need to take yep. precautions. And because and, there's times where I go to stands and it's like, you're running late. I mean, everybody runs late, and you always feel like you're rushed in the in the in the fall, you, you know. And it's like, yeah, get there and just take every precaution you can, and just be safe with. That's a good point. Yeah, I just there's no deer in the world that's worth uh, something happening to either you or you know your family as a repercussion. I just want to make sure we we hit on that. We're talking about all all the little stuff. There, none of that matters um, until you're safe first. So. Uh, just want to make sure we touch on that. Definitely, man. That's a good point. Great point, actually. So, yeah, I mean, hanging hunts, I've, I've covered basically everything I think I want to cover. There is another thing I want to ask you about, and basically, how was your season this year? It was good. It was kind of a, a crazy year based on, um, you know, just personal stuff of moving and finding new properties, and uh, it was one of the most challenging seasons I've experienced in a while, and uh, you know those are sometimes the seasons where you kill uh a really big deer and that was the case with me this year i killed a killed a good buck in uh mid-november and uh some of those hard-earned ones feel the best and that was the case with this one yeah what was the scenario can you break that hunt down for us was it a hanging hunt or was it a pre pre-hung to stand it was a hanging hunt, uh, but it was my second time in that particular tree. I'd hunted it once before, a couple weeks before the day I actually killed, um, but I went back to it. I took two two stands again on November 11th, 
Uh, so it was a hanging hunt, but it was my second time at, in that actual tree. It was just a tree that I knew was in the right spot, and I knew there's potential there. I, it wasn't like I knew of this specific deer or any specific deer for that matter. I just knew it was a good spot and had the potential to produce a, a good deer. And, and it was one of those nights where everything worked out. Um, this buck uh, came out following some does or, or got on some does trails a few hundred yards away, and he was in the right mood, and I was able to rattle him rattle them in from right around 250 yards away into 28 is i think is what the shot was and it was just it was one of those nights where everything came together the the camera angles the the footage all that stuff it was pretty awesome that's fun and that's what makes i mean that's the dessert you know that we get as hunters you know everybody wants to to kill a deer and everything but to me that's it's great doing that but it's it's the dessert on the cake and you know i love everything else about it and like you said everything was perfect the camera angles the you know the way the deer acted you know and in the shot placement and ethical kill and being safe as well and you know when a plan comes together it's it doesn't feel any better than that yeah it was awesome and it was one of those times where the season just changed on a dime it was actually the first shooter i had seen all year and that you know, for as hard as I hunt and some of the properties I've hunted in the past, for me to go all the way up until November 11th without even laying eyes on a shooter, it was, it was kind of crazy. But that's just how the season was playing out. I was trying to figure out new properties. Um, my farm had completely flooded, so all the deer moved off of that. So I was hunting different areas. Um, but the first shooter I'd seen all season happened to be the one that I was able to call in and, and kill. Love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> That's not not very often. Yeah, doesn't happen very often at all. But from where I'm sitting, it looks like it happens more often to <laughs> you than most people. Because I got George Brett within arm's reach of me to my right, and I can look over my left shoulder and see Twinkie back from the the younger days of Jared Mills and uh, the 186 we talked about earlier. And I recognize the other two. I just don't know what they're called. <laughs> it's, it's it's cool to see like if you go through that all the uh all the first time in sits and three out of the four that we're looking at right there were first time in and the other one i think was second time in so it's uh the proof's in the pudding that's topic topic that we've been talking about all all evening yeah it's really got me thinking and you know and i i definitely want to get into it but it also I, I need the right gear to do it as well. I just don't want to go in there with a clunky, you know, big old clunky tree stand that's heavier and heck. And, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. half the battle is having the right tools like a carpenter. You got to have the right tools to to make the, or to have the product, that you know, the best product you can to build the best thing. Yeah. To add on to that, we, we kind of went off the topic when you asked me that question. I, I said something that packs together from the sticks and the stand, but from a stand perspective, having something easy to hang is huge. You know, something that, that has the little, the, the post uh, loops on it that you're not trying to feed straps through or anything like that is a huge time saver. Something that's easy to hang, something that you can adjust um, how level the platform is and the seat is. Those are some other little things that I would recommend looking into when it comes to this hanging on equipment. Very cool. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and we use uh, some Millennium tree stands and they've got a cool system with the receiver that you put on the tree. But the only bad thing with that is, is it's got a ratchet strap, you know, so you're making noise doing yeah. that as well. 
So it's nice to be able to have like the muddy system or the Versa button system where it's just like a pull tight strap and, mm-hmm. and go from there as well. Um, yeah. You know, back to Justin was talking about George Brett. Now I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan and I'm sure you are knowing who George Brett yeah. is and, and, uh, yeah. um, I, I name a lot of my deer and, but the George Brett story, I followed that, you know, when it was happening and that was a unbelievable story. And that deer, honestly, is kind of a legend around, you know, uh, around the industry and, you know, people that have watched Mindy West White till I'm sure, but let's dive into that a little bit. I want to know a little more about that deer and the story with him, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's one of the, the cool ones to talk about. I wish it would have ended a different way, but um it's all about the stories and that's that's why we do what we do that's my favorite part of this um george brett well kind of going with with your baseball reference how he got his name when i first saw him he was a four-year-old eight-pointer a big eight-pointer like mid-150s um but it looked like he had pine tar from the bases of his antlers all the way up almost to his g2s It, it just looked like pine tar and for for those baseball fans out there, I'm sure you get the connection. Um, so that's where his name came from. Um, I actually hunted him as a four-year-old, and typically I try to target deer when they're five and older. But I was pretty sure this deer was four, but he was a mainframe eight, super clean eight. He did have a drop tine, but you know, good tine leg, no signs of throwing up G4s, uh, really good mass. And I had never seen a deer like that make a giant jump four to five. I remember talking to multiple people trying to decide if I should hunt the deer or not. And I decided that I'm going to try to hunt him throughout the bow season. If he makes it to the gun seasons, um, I'm going to try to get him to five and a half. And that's what happened. But I learned a lot about that deer, uh, that four-year-old deer targeting him. And uh, speaking of the hanging hunts, I jumped all over the place with that deer. I would see him make an adjustment, see him make an adjustment, um, just all kind of, it would be pretty funny if I took a map and put all the little spots I, I tried hunting him and where I encountered him because it just, it looked like a, someone threw a bunch of pins on a map just randomly. It was just, I was popping all over the place. And the farm I was hunting him on was, was pretty homogenous. There wasn't a lot of things that forced their movement. So, you know, I, I, that kind of led to jumping all over the place and trying to get trying to get lucky a little bit. But George Brett was a deer that I learned so much hunting. He acted different than uh, any other bucks I'd hunted in the past. He had a different personality. And it's funny because everyone that knows George Brett rem- remembers him because of the fight that I filmed. And that was his four-year-old year, that year that I was hunting him. And you you think of watching that fight and you think, man, that's an aggressive buck. But in rea- reality, he was the exact opposite. He was very, very timid, um, did not respond to calls. It just, he happened to be, you know, in the right moment, hot, fighting for a hot doe that time when I filmed him. But uh, you could tell I have a lot of trail cam videos of him. Every scrape he approached was with, with caution uh, and not because I had left a bunch of scent there, and that's why he was cautious. You know, every other buck would come in, in there and just tear it up. He just had that kind of cautious personality, timid personality. Uh, you could see it all the way from the summer all the way through the season. He just was not an aggressive deer. And so I, I learned a lot about that, and, and learned that taught me a lot about the individuality of these bucks and how they're, they all have their own personalities. Um, so kind of fast-forwarding, 
he made it through the year. We found his sheds. And as a five and a half year old, it took him quite a while to get back on the farm. I had a buddy that was hunting a neighboring farm and he had quite a few pictures of him in September and October, but he slowly but surely made his way back over and he adjusted his quarry a little bit. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, he, he kicked another buck out or just kind of shifted it, but he was, he was tough to hunt that five and a half year old year. And I did have quite a few pictures of him, but the only time I actually saw him on the hoof was walking in. I was had stands and sticks going to do a hanging hunt uh, close to where I filmed him fighting the year before. And he was running across multiple ridges chasing a doe as hard as he possibly could. He was veering off trying to run this other buck off but still try to keep up with the doe. Um, unfortunately we didn't get any footage of him. He was up, he was, um, he was probably a hundred yards up above us. Uh, we were down in the bottom looking up at him running across the tops of these ridges. And that was the last time I saw him, uh, in person or on camera. He completely went off the radar. Um, my buddy that was a neighbor wasn't getting pictures of him. And deep down I knew something had happened to him. I just didn't know what, and my season I kind of dedicated that deer so I, I wasn't sure whether I should give up because I wasn't getting pictures of him or just you know hoping that he was somehow avoiding the cameras and I was eventually going to uh, catch up with him I, I kept hunting kept hunting where I thought where I believed was his core area never saw him and fast forward to February the following year I found him dead right in the middle of his core area uh, he was dead against the fence I have no idea how he died if he if another hunter had hit him, if he died in a fight, um, I have no idea. He was basically just a skeleton when I found him. So, like I said earlier, not not the way you want that story to end. Um, but it was it was cool to have closure. It was cool that I was the one that found him. Um, and just just a really cool deer that I learned so much from. And as we all can agree, it's all about the hunt, and the story, and what you can learn from it. And uh, he was a pretty special deer as far as the hunt goes. Yeah. You know, what kind of jump did he make from a four to five year old as far as antler size goes? So I think I scored his sheds right around 154 as a four year old eight. And he he made a jump into a full blown 10, long fours. Um, he, he scored right at one. He's 180 and five eights as a five year old. So wow. he put on over 25 inches. And like I said, I, I had never seen a deer make. Usually when they're, you know, going to blow into a full-blown 10 with long G4s, usually see some type of, you know, Nicker G, G4s the year before or something. Yep. He had no sign of that, and I just assumed he'd be another, because he was a 3-year-old 8, 4-year-old 8, and then a 5-year-old full-blown 10. So I was amazed at the jump he made, um, but he was, he was you know, going to be, it was a George Bretter bust season for me, regardless of that jump. I just had too much cool history with them as a four-year-old uh, for him to not be my main target. Yeah, that's crazy. And like you said, with the stories, it's, you know, that's that's what we live for. And, you know, this year I was hunting a deer and um, definitely not the caliber of George Brett, but he was a four-year-old. <laughs> and, you know, around yeah. my area, it's, it's, it's hard for us to get deer to four years old and, um, yeah. I've been, I've known about this deer for three years and hunted him hard for two years. And as a three-year-old, I, you know, I only saw him one time, had him on camera and he disappeared. And, um, 
saw him with a bedded with a doe, locked down with a doe in the rut uh, from the road, and then I'm like, for sure this deer is gonna, he's gonna probably somebody's gonna kill him with a gun, and he never did. This year, you know, summer showed up, uh, you know, with the with beans on and velvet and everything. He was the first deer that showed up, and he was bigger. Same rack. He he's never grown uh, a right side. It's always been like a big spike with a split, but his left side has always been like a good four point side and. And, uh, I went in this year in the morning, uh, early that morning that I felt like I bumped that doe. Um, and he came by it at, uh, 18 yards and I shot him and hit him high and tracked him for two days and never found him, tracked him to the only standing cornfield on our farm and, uh, or even in the area and never found him. Fast forward, uh, saw him two more times with a gun, couldn't get on him, and then I had neighbors that were passing him up because, it, you know, with a deer that's only got one side, not a lot of the neighbor, you know, a lot of people look at it and it's like, oh, that's not a very good deer. But yeah, I have a lot of neighbors that aren't like real big diehard hunters, and I don't think they're they know a lot about, you know, the age structure of a deer and everything and how he's kind of a unicorn in our area as far as age goes, which was fine, but they passed him up. Three guys passed him up with a gun in one day and he was very visible. Like, you know, as a three-year-old, he was not visible as a four-year-old. He was all over. And I'm like, this deer is going to get shot. I know he (laughs) is. Um, I ended up kicking him up, kicking him up out of his bed one morning, doing something I shouldn't have been doing. I was, I was getting curious, you know, and, and trying to figure out, you know, trying to get in a little more aggressive and I ended up getting too close to him. And uh, he ended up getting hit by a car <laughs> and Man. dying by a car. And uh, right on, I mean, it was 300 yards north of his core area and Pat, coming across the road and got hit by a car. And my brother-in-law, he runs a, you know, he's a part owner in a, in a dairy farm here. And, and it's his dairy farm uh, land is all around this farm. And he was hauling manure one morning and he calls me he's like i named the deer jim abbott you know baseball fan and he had a a week one side and you know a good other side so his name was jim abbott and um he's like jim's in the ditch right here and he's you know he's 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 done for and i said no way and he goes yeah he got hit by a car well he took a picture of it and sent it to me and i was gonna leave work but it was gonna be a long excursion i would have drove an hour one way just to you know go get him and so I'm like, well, I'll go get him that night. And I called the DNR, got the salvage tag, did everything that, you know, I wanted. I wanted to go and, and give this deer closure. You know, I wanted to, to respect him the way that I felt like he should be respected. And I was going to, you know, get a nice European mount mm-hmm. of him. I wanted to do everything I could. And by yeah. the time I got there that night, somebody had already cut his antlers off. Oh, man. So I didn't even get to touch his antlers. <laughs> that's a bummer. Yeah, that's that's what's tough is there's so many ways these deer can die. Um, you could have a thousand acres and think that you're doing the right thing by passing these deer up and, and you're just going to wait till he's five and hunt him or four when he, and hunt him. And it, it just doesn't work like that. There's just so many ways these deer can die, whether it be a neighbor or a car or a fight yep. or um, it, you just see it so many times that you're taking a big risk every time you pass a deer. Yeah. And it's crazy how uh, how intimate you kind of get with these deer, you know. And it yeah. sounds like you're, the you know, all three of us are the same way. I, I like to name deer. That's just how I identify them, and and I, I like to build stories with them. And that's just part of the story for me. And yeah. 
you know, once he died and had clo- I had closure, it was almost like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Like I didn't have to, it sucked because I wanted him to, to get through and I wanted to see him next year. But, you know, it was like, man, like that was like, you can even ask my wife. Like I thought about that deer all the time, every day, you know, I wonder what that, yeah. wonder, wonder what Jim's doing, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It sounds weird, but that's just, I wonder all... if he thinks about me too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But still, I mean that maybe I'm just weird like that. Yeah. It is weird when you step back and think about it. There's just, there's no way to explain it to someone that doesn't understand. That's for sure. Yep. No. And uh, you know, as producers, it's the emotional investment we have in our subjects. And that's why, you know, we do what we do. Like two perfect examples, George Brett and Jim Abbott, it just proves you don't need to kill him yourself, you know, to bring that story to life. Like it's going to end somehow. You want it to be with your arrow, but if it doesn't, you have, you still have the whole story except for the fact of pulling the trigger. I mean, yeah, like Jared said, everybody knows, George Brett for being in that fight in the river that day, you know, and, and for you, I mean, what's the story for me that sticks out the most with you and and Jim is the day you pushed your luck and bumped him out and you're like, ah, that's it. It's over. He's gone. And then he gets hit by a car. Yep. After having been shot, you, you shot him once and he got shot with a gun. Yeah. Yeah. A, A neighbor shot him too shot him and grazed his back with a gun. I mean, he was a warrior and that's crazy. I was just, I was going to say it's a testament to the commitment we have to the story. It's not just about going out and, and filming these animals die, you know, and trying to play the chess game and outsmart these animals. It's, you know, that's, that's the story we choose to tell. And it's, it's more than just the kill. Yeah. And we look, we love the stories and, you know, people may look down on us for naming deer or, you know, targeting specific deer but really it just comes down to being so passionate about something and that's that's where we're at it it's just it eats us up we we eat sleep breathe it and i feel bad for the people that aren't passionate about something out there whether it's hunting or not um i I think just having something that you live for uh just really makes things more enjoyable uh, whatever that may be and and for us it's it's whitetails and these stories that we're chasing i agree man you couldn't have said any better i think we covered everything that i wanted to cover i mean you guys have any closing thoughts and or anything on that end i appreciate you guys having me uh this was fun and uh like i said earlier you know our original topic of hanging hunting i'm a huge believer in it it's uh i've I've heard way too many stories and i've had too many personal experiences uh to know it's not coincidence that your first time in and second time in are are super effective just you know be smart in the way you do it be safe in the way you do it but um you know i'm a huge believer in and how well it works yeah, and, you know, for all these stories that we've been talking about, George Brett and, you know, the 186 we were talking about, Jared, where, can you direct people that are listening to this to kind of where they can go to, to see all this content that you're doing and kind of follow what you and Midwest Whitetail are doing? Yeah, so the, the MidwestWhitetail.com has all these videos. Uh, you, know, all, you can look at all the archive and go way back all the way to 2008 and watch all these hunts. Uh, but also one of our growing platforms is on YouTube. So we have a, a main Middle Switetail YouTube channel. And then uh, the one that's really growing is Middle Switetail Daily on YouTube. And this is where we post 
are almost everyday blogs. So every hunt, whether it's successful or not, gets posted on there. As we're moving into the off season here, you know, all the little projects we do and scouting we do and and all that stuff will just get posted. It's very just raw, real content, not not overly edited, anything like that. But you know, people like to go along and and learn with us and you know see all see whether we do right or wrong or the mistakes we make and, and learn from that too so uh, middle swipe tail daily on youtube is a, is a good spot to follow that awesome it's all available too on uh, on streaming devices apple tv roku and amazon fire yep. and then also the uh, mobile devices too so android and ios yep and that's when you add those channels it's under uh Whitetail TV. Whitetail TV. Yep. And the same same with the mobile app on Android and iOS. It's it's all free. You can download the app or just add the channel to your streaming devices. And I highly recommend all that stuff. I watch it a lot today. I had it on in the office and just in the background. And you guys are doing great stuff. And I, again, Jared, I appreciate you coming on and doing this. And maybe we'll have to do this again for sure. Yeah, anytime. I'd be happy to come and do it again. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you, and you, uh, you guys have a good night.